twists the smile until it forms the downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosized into beast, vermin, insect. Fill in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, devils, demons, myrmidons, and evil. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt and slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will have become not merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectic of history. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? We do insist on making enemies of everyone who we imagine is against us. So again, I'm asking this morning, if this is true, why do we hate? And I want to be clear, I'm not doing this this morning to make any of us sit here in despair. What I'm certainly not going to do, and I haven't done, and I would encourage none of you to do, and I want to encourage our community not to do, is engage in conversations that do nothing but continue the arc of hate that this world has been on since Cain slaughtered his brother. I actually heard a news anchor, well, that's a loose definition of what he was talking this week about how difficult Vegas was because if it was ISIS, we could hate them. If it was this, we could hate them. If it was that, we could hate them. But this is just a white, middle-class American male with no seemingly motive. How do you hate him? And that's when I decided it. these events do not warrant us to engage in that conversation or in our politics. These events demand we look inward and ask why we hate. Because we don't have to. Scripture says the Christ in us is bigger than the evil in this world. If that's true, but it's not true in our hearts, then maybe we're not letting Christ have control. Maybe we continue to put ourselves on the throne, what we have been talking about for months here at Cana, worshiping ourselves. Meet Andrew Rice. He refused hate, even though he had a very good reason for it. On September 11, 2001, his brother David was in the World Trade Centers. He died. He and David were incredibly close. He talked of constant battle inside him for months after the attack. One side of him wanting retribution and to demonize the enemy. The other side knowing it would not help. One side wanted to answer hate with hate, the other to overcome hate with love. His choice was made on the day he had a chance to meet Madame Wafe, the mother of one of the hijackers. Through an organization on reconciliation, she had asked to meet the family members of the victims of her son's actions. She wanted to ask them for forgiveness. 
These are now Andrew's words. A small group of us agreed to meet Madami Al-Wafi in New York City in November of 2002. As we waited in a private university building, a mother whose son was killed in the World Trade Center went down the hall to meet her. We heard footsteps, then silence. Then we heard the sobbing. Finally, they both came into the room, both mothers, with their arms around each other. By now, we were all crying. Madame Al-Wafi reminded me a lot of my own mother, who had cried so much after David died. She spent three hours talking with us. One day, I'd like to meet her son. I'd like to say to him, you can hate me and my brother as much as you like. But I want you to know that I loved your mother and I comforted her when she was crying. That posture could never put us on the 32nd floor with an arsenal of death, ever. Any other posture could. Two lines, one marked by love and one by hate. Please know I am not naive, I'm not a young man, I'm 52, and I understand how violent and painful this world can be. I get it. But interestingly and sadly, it is the natural and socially accepted responses to being hurt, like cries for fairness and justice and retribution and punishment and getting even, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that I think keep us trapped in a life of not loving others. And while we try to rationalize our attitudes and behaviors toward others because they have hurt us, what we are really doing is giving ourselves reasons to remain in the line of Cain. To continue, as Sam Keen wrote, make an enemy that we can kill without guilt and slaughter without shame, when instead we are supposed to be loving them. Now, since Cain began, we have been exploring the Jesus Creed. Love God, love others. That's what Jesus said. But I'm aware that sometimes this much exploration of this singular topic can have a negative effect instead of the intended positive effect. The purpose we talk about loving each other week after week is to enable, encourage, inspire each other to live into love better. To live into the kingdom of God more fully. But sometimes I know it can leave us feeling frustrated, insecure, Maybe even as though there's something wrong with us or wrong with our faith, because no matter how hard we try or want to love, we often fail. We remain better haters than we do lovers. However, I think that's why honesty about what hate really is is so important. If we can identify and be honest that anything that's not love is hate, that is helpful and hopeful, and here's why, because it calls a spade a spade. It does not let us live lives of silent desperation where we medicate ourselves with false claims that we are benevolent and doing good by ridding the world of God's enemies. Honesty reminds us that when we do not love, we are haters. Yet as followers of Christ, we are supposed to be lovers. That's what honesty does. So, our repeated failure at this does not need to cause despair or frustration or insecurity. And here's why. Meet St. John. This man was a hater. 
par excellence. And I know that comes as a shock sometimes because he's the celebrated apostle of love, which is worth celebrating. But unlike Christian biographers who always leave out the dirt on their subjects of their biography, David, any of those books you sold back in the 80s ever lay out the dirt of all these giants of the faith? Remember that series? You must remember that series. The Giants of the Faith series, Rich? No? Oh, that was in the bookstore at one of the places out in California. Giants of the Faith. It wasn't one bad thing about any of them. But the Bible's an amazingly honest book. The Bible is not afraid that telling the truth about people's sins will mislead anyone. This is the kind of honesty I think we could all use. Honesty is better. Honesty is better. It paints a truer picture. And in the end, the best part about honesty, it reveals more clearly the power of Jesus Christ to transform us. That is what is so amazing about the story of John. John was not born perfect. Jesus did not choose John because he was this wonderful lover of people and just like Jesus. Or that he was special and deserved it. No, John was an ordinary guy with an anger issue and a tendency to hate. He was the son of Zebedee, the brother of James. Some scholars think he was a cousin of Jesus. His father was a fisherman, and that is what John was doing when Jesus called him to follow. And then the writers of the Gospels give us this amazingly, wonderfully honest picture of this horrible man. It starts right here in Mark 10. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Hey, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus said, Well, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left hand in glory. And Jesus is like, Well, actually, you have no idea what you're asking. Um, but it's this last line here. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. See, this is not a little kid asking for something. Oh, give me some ice cream, give me this. That's not what this is. This is arrogance self-absorption. This is the opposite of other-centeredness. So we all go through life not being other-centered, right? No, it's okay. I needed this right now, or I need that, or that. that. Well, actually, nope, because it's not love. And if it's not love, it's hate. Or at least the tiny seeds of hate. Now we get this fabulous little bit of John's failure to love. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. <laughs> this one's interesting and very convicting because this is what we do, isn't it? John is rationalizing his hate by protecting the purity of his ministry. Wow. Wow. You know, when you sit back and reflect on the great religion that is Christianity and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of branches, it can seem as though so many of us miss Jesus' response to John here. And I include myself in that. It's as if many thought John was doing the right thing. How many branches are so quick to condemn other branches? Oh, they can't be. They can't, they can't possibly be Christians. Yet what is so sad is that Jesus was very clear in warning against this. His answer here to John, and as recorded in Luke, is very clear. He who is not with me is against me. This is where we fail to love in this area. For John, remember, it was about us. 
he and his group. But Jesus said, nope, it's not about you, John. And it's not about your group. It's about me and only me. It's about Christ, and it's not about us ever. One of my favorite writers, Annie Lamott, has this great line about this. I think I have it up here. Yeah, yeah. I have to remember that I follow Jesus. I don't follow followers of Jesus. Oh, I love that. You know, for those of you that have those moments when you're just ready to abandon Christianity because of Christians, or maybe you already have abandoned Christianity because of Christians, I'm sorry. Christians aren't our savior. Christians are not the end all of our faith. Thank God. So many of you know me so well and intimately. <laughs> That's why I know you're not following me. <laughs> you got it. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. The second Christianity becomes about what we know and what we believe instead of who we know and who we believe, I suggest it's no longer Christianity. Christianity is about Christ. Just because his followers are a bunch of messed up idiots doesn't mean he is not real or true. That's what I love so much about that in the House of God Brother song. Whatever happens, whatever happens, good, bad, or otherwise, we are in the House of God Brother. Okay, and if those two issues aren't enough, then there's this most disturbing episode from John's life. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead and went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Wow. He is. This is racism. Surprise, it's not just an American problem in 2017. It's been around since there has been humans. The Samaritans and Jews did not like each other. Racism in any form is hate. Period. I was fortunate. I was brought up in a home where racism wasn't an issue. We had friends from all the, the spectrum of humanity in and out of my house since I was little. I was never taught racism. And I'm exceedingly thankful for that. But I was still brought up in tons of white privilege. But here's the thing. If you were brought up in a racist environment, it's not your fault. But I want to strongly encourage you, even though it wasn't your fault, now take the responsibility and break the cycle. God is not racist. And if you're using Jesus Christ at any level to condone racism, I'm sorry, it's not Jesus Christ. God's not racist. And there's more than just racism happening here. Like before, Jesus, John, not Jesus, that was a slip. John is exercising hate with good intentions. He is defending God. The Samaritans rejected Jesus, therefore John was going to kill them. Notice Jesus' response. 
You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Imagine if Jesus showed up and said that to us. I think he would. You do not know what spirit you are of. How many times have Christians supported or even participated in actions that have been violent and hateful because they had convinced themselves they were defending God and punishing people who had rejected God? How many times? This would have been the first crusade. If Jesus wasn't around to stop it, that would have been the first crusade. As followers of Christ, I think we should all be very careful to define properly love and hate. So we will not be fooled into supporting actions, both on large global scales and on the small scales of personal relationships, that are not Christ-like, no matter how well-intentioned they are. Or how well-disguised behind words like justice, freedom, truth, liberty, security, self-protection. I know in a utilitarian society, in the kingdoms of men, certain things may need to be done. I understand that. But what I'm asking us, like I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit asked the first followers of Jesus, if we claim to be followers of Christ, we have sworn our allegiance to a different kingdom, not this kingdom, or these kingdoms. And the kingdom we have sworn allegiance to, the Jesus creed is the ultimate law. Love God, love others. Love and hate are very different things. And like Jesus said, I think we should strive to know what spirit we are. There are people all the time, Christians in their disciplines in all these different areas and their study of all these different areas and, and wanting to understand doctrine and all this stuff. I think maybe this is the second greatest command Jesus left us. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Strive to understand that. Strive to understand what the Holy Spirit is really trying to do in our lives. So, that's the real story of St. John. And it offers so much hope. Because if this man, filled with that much anger and hate, can become an apostle... We need not despair when we hate. You know, the three epistles of John make up about 2% of the New Testament. They contain 20% of the uses of the word love. A man that was this filled with anger and hate. His theology became one of love, declaring finally God is love, and clearly defining the chasm between love and hate. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has, not, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And John became so humble that when he wrote his gospel account, he referred to himself not by name, but by this moniker, the disciple whom Jesus loved which I believe explains exactly how this transformation happened. And this is what we talk about all the time. In the three years he spent with Jesus, and the many years after studying scripture, remembering all that Jesus had said and done, praying, being filled with the Spirit, 
he learned that he was loved. John learned that God loved him completely, unconditionally, without limits, and without end. He learned God loved him as he was, not as he should be. That's why I think he wrote about his own story. And when we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are so loved, we can be free to love others. Ever since I started to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, as revealed in Scripture, that God loves us, and that in understanding God loves us is the beginning of true transformation, the more and more I get into it, the more I'm convinced of it. When we are in the middle of not loving others, whether that's our spouse on any given day or night, or whether that's friends, or whether it's real enemies, try this. Let's try to be brave enough and honest enough to go deep into the darkness of our own souls and what we will find there, I am convinced of, is because we know we're not loved or we're afraid we're not loved. That's why we're acting out in ways that are not loved. When we are suspicious that we are not loved, it's impossible to live into love. And so we get defensive, we get angry, we get violent. And yeah, we can say whatever we want about, well, that, no, this is this is righteous anger. This is, this. I feel this way. I'm supposed to feel this way. I, I doubt it. I highly doubt it. I've spent 32 years convincing myself that it's everyone else in my life that's wrong. No, it's not. No one could bat a thousand in that area. It's pretty much in the darkness of my soul. I'm afraid I'm not loved. And in this universe of human beings, most of us aren't loved. Let's be honest. Because everyone's just like us. They have trouble loving. So most of our suspicions are true. We're not loved. So we don't love. And when we stop seeking it from other non-loving human beings and seek it from love itself, then change starts. Transformation begins and these seeds of hate start to die. And we're free to love because we know we're loved. John left an amazing hint in his writings of how much he was convinced of the magnificence of God's love for us. Check this out. This is why John's my favorite writer. So he starts off as apostle and he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that would be Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So Jesus in the bosom of the Father. This is that picture of perfect eternal love that God has for Jesus, right? So John gives us this magnificent picture of the love that is in the Godhead. Now, when John writes about himself later in his epistle, the way John mirrors stuff, John, oh, I've talked about this before, I just love the book of John, but anyway, he writes this. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Oh, 
So he takes this picture and understanding of how much God loves Jesus, and it finally hits him years later, maybe it was on Patmos by this time when he's writing this, and he says, oh, and Jesus held me on his bosom. God loves me as much as God loves Jesus, and everything changed. Oh. If we can capture that, if we can believe that, if we can live in that moment, then I think we too, like John, will move out of the line of Cain and into the line of Jesus Christ. Might God help us all.